The next case was presented by Dr. Alan Astrell to Drs. Mackey and Geyer. The woman is 56 years old. She was found to have a 3.7 centimeter ERPR negative, no negative, HER2 new negative breast cancer in November 2006. So that's a little over a year ago. She has a past medical history of cancer of the cervix, diagnosed about 18 years ago. She received radiation to the pelvis for that. She also has a history of a seizure disorder and has been on Tegretol. She was treated with adjuvant dose-dense AC followed by Taxol. And then in November of this year, which is one year after her initial diagnosis, or November 2007, excuse me, she developed a right upper quadrant pain and had a PET-CT that showed multiple liver metastases. She had an FNA, which confirmed metastatic breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit more about her life situation and her reaction to this diagnosis? She lives in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. She is a housewife, does not work outside the home. When I told her that she had recurrence and metastases to her liver, she took it, at least from what I could see, stoically. She did not complain. She did not break down. She just took the information and wanted to know what was going to happen, wanted to know what her prognosis was. Spouse? Her husband was with her during her treatment, but did not come with her for the discussion about her recurrence. Her daughter actually flew in from California to discuss what was going on. What was the daughter's reaction? Well, again, the daughter was pretty much like the mother. She took it almost stoically. But then when I said to both of them, I said, you know, I told them that, you know, that this was generally not the thought to be something that we could cure. Again, with no protest, no expression of angst, I said to both of them, well, clearly this has to be extremely troubling news that I'm giving to both of you. And at that point, the daughter began to cry. What was your state of mind? Well, this is a very, very difficult situation. I think it's one of the hardest parts of being an oncologist. When your treatment has not worked, and patients ask you questions for which the honest answer is not an answer you really want to give the patient. It's really, really hard. It's quite painful, I find, to have to deliver this sort of news. You also have your own uncertainty about it, you know, because certainly we've all seen patients who've done much better than we would have imagined, and we want to be honest with the person. On the other hand, you don't want to take away their hope, and you need to reflect the basic uncertainty of medical practice that, you know, I've seen patients who've had multiple liver metastases and you know, they've lived much longer than anyone might have expected. So, you know, you have to keep that in mind as well. So it was pretty tough. John, any comments? How do you support patients and families in this situation? And how do you take care of yourself? Yeah, well, this is the worst scenario when you have, you know, a curative intent patient and then, you know, that's lost, essentially. That first meeting when you have to break the bad news. And there are some things you can do to help. I mean, the physical setup, of course. I don't like to tell these people over the phone. Of course, you want to sit down. I find if you're at eye level or lower, it's even better. So I'll often sit on the footstool of the examining table and be looking up at them when I tell patients this kind of news. It's somehow less threatening. 
you know, it's nice to have family members in there, and I always have tissue Kleenex in the office. Is that for you or for the, for the patient? Well, it, sometimes it's for both of us. But at the end of the day, it's difficult. But we do have a stat psychosocial oncology team. And basically, we've got some lovely people. They all happen to be women. That's not saying they couldn't be men. But we have some psychologists who have basically said that they're willing to drop what they're doing and come down when there are these issues. And we routinely consult them to get people through their adjuvant therapies. And so at least they often have a sort of an identified person for if and when the bad news comes. And we're fortunate enough to be able to get them in very rapidly in that fashion. But at the end of the day, it's a fine line walking between, you know, the reality of the issue and preserving some hope. Well, the way I say it is that, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I don't know how long you're going to live with this, but you know, we need to get on to treatment. And I find once you start talking about treatment, then people can start focusing a bit on the future. And so I'll often, even in these first interviews, bring up you know, treatment options and talk about them when they're ready to at least take some of that information home. And I meet with them a few days later after they've had time to settle down. Chuck, any comments? What got me into clinical trials and still motivates me is this kind of a patient that just the tumor didn't do what it was supposed to do, and it's always made me angry because when I was training, I had no intent of doing clinical trials research, but quickly as I did oncology, it's like, well, God, there's so much so much of the time we don't help, and so that's my coping mechanism, quite frankly. That's how I cope by putting the next patient on a trial that has a triple negative tumor is important to me, frankly. Anything happening right now in terms of systemic therapy for triple negative breast cancer, John, that's you know, maybe exciting or Yeah, hopeful? well, thank you for letting me talk about the other love of my life. We have Beth, which is the HER2 positive trial, but we also have Beatrice, who's an equally beautiful sister. And Beatrice is a trial that we're now launching globally. And the TRI in Beatrice is triple negative. And so this is a very pragmatic trial that we designed together with a global team of investigators to explore the value of the addition of bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting. Now, the design of this trial is one where basically any chemotherapy backbone is acceptable because it's not a chemo question, it's a bevacizumab question. And we're pretty comfortable that at least in the absence of giving concurrent Herceptin, you can safely give bevacizumab with most of the chemotherapeutic cocktails we might use. And we just asked the doc to state up front, you know, in this particular patient, the chemo I will use is this, and then you get randomized if the woman's got a node negative or a node positive tumor and it doesn't have distant mets and doesn't have, you know, rip-roaring cardiovascular disease and hypertension and all the usual exclusions. They'll get randomized on a one-to-one basis to bevacizumab or not. And the duration of the bevacizumab is purely arbitrary. It's a one-year duration that begins with the day one of chemotherapy. So it's a simple pragmatic trial that accepts that there are differences in standard of practice, but we're going to be hoping to see in this triple negative population that anti-angiogenic therapy is going to make a difference. What do we know right now in terms of triple negative breast cancer and angiogenesis and anti-angiogenesis? Well, we do know that If you are to look at triple negative tumors and compare them to all other comers, on average, there tends to be a bit more VEGF production than there is in the non-triple negative tumors. The other group that pops out with higher VEGF levels is the HER2 positive 
tumors. So if you're looking for a preclinical rationale to do the trial, that's one. There's a major unmet medical need. There is a trial with the compound Sutent that suggests that in their metastatic experience with their drug, that the patients with triple negatives did have some responses, and there may be a better signal from their Sutent trials in the triple negative population. In the E2100 study, you know, there were patients who were triple negatives in that first-line metastatic experience who, you know, clearly benefited in terms of freedom from progression from bevacizumab. And, you know, this is at a pragmatic level also just the next drug on the shelf that's ready for prime time in an adjuvant setting, and we've got a population which we're not succeeding with. And, of course, there's a major ECOG study now that's looking at bevacizumab and breast cancer basically the same issue. Chuck, what Broader would you... eligibility than Beatrice. Yeah, de- definitely. Yeah. De- so yeah. E5103 is for all comers who are HER2 negative, right. basically. Chuck, what would you be thinking about in terms of non-protocol therapy in this situation? Has she completed her paclitaxel how long ago? She relapsed five months later. Was she symptomatic from the tumor? She's very symptomatic. She has severe right upper quadrant pain, and she's requiring OxyContin for pain relief. What are her liver functions? Her ALT is just over two and a half times normal. Her AST is normal, and her ALKFOS is slightly elevated. I think it's around 180, and her bilirubin is normal. So, Chuck, what would you be thinking? Well, I mean, two questions. Bev, yes, no. And then you go down the road. If yes, I'm going to give BEV, then what do I give with the BEV? If no, then what are my alternatives? This would be a patient where I would try to give BEV. I mean, basically, there's some you know biology here that fits VEGF overexpression, and we have something that she's not been exposed to that I would want to wrap my therapy around. So that would be my first Question, can she get BEV reimbursed? Can I throw a little wrinkle in here? Because when I was thinking about BEV, I got an MRI scan of the brain, and she has a two-millimeter frontal lobe abnormality of uncertain significance for which three-month follow-up is suggested. I would ignore that personally, because the reason we don't give the BEV for patients with brain mets is because the decision was made to exclude them in the trials so we don't have the safety data and I would let them know it could be a met, there is this, you know, she could always bleed, I can't get, but, you know, it, my assumption is that the liver is going to obviously be the terminal event for her, not this thing in the brain, though clearly a bleed would be a catastrophe. So I would focus on that and ignore that finding for now. So putting aside the cost and reimbursement issue and just kind of focusing on clinical science in terms of this case, if you could get whatever, whether it's BEV or anything else, whatever you wanted to get that's available, what would you treat her with specifically? Well, this is the hard one because she's had dose-dense Taxol, and the best data is with Taxol. So it's that, do I go back and revisit that drug in a different schedule, the weekly schedule, or do I give it with a different drug? And there's no answer. You just have to make a decision and go with it. I personally would go back to the paclitaxel, but this would be a case where I would go to weekly and I would also hedge my bets by switching to a Braxane. Now, am I kidding myself with that? Am I buying, you know, I mean, I, I would do that because there has been enough smoke that maybe there is something there. And another reason would she already had dose-dense taxol, if she responds well to this, I'm going to want to have it go a long time and I don't want to have to stop it 
for neuropathy three months down the road. So I also, that's another, in my mind, reason I like the Abraxane is it does appear you delay onset of neuropathy if you want to go a long time. And I'm hoping that I may get there. So that's what I would go for first. Now, you know, you get into all kinds of questions. And I'm hoping that my biology will be the VEGF, so I'm giving a drug that we have data on where it seems to work the best, making a change. If it doesn't work, then I'm thinking, okay, my backup, then I would go to ixabepilone with capecitabine. So I would kind of hold the cape to give it with the ixabepilone is what I'm thinking, rightly or wrongly. John, what are your thoughts about the, you know, the hints or the whiffs or the possibilities that maybe NAB's going to have more efficacy than paclitaxel, this thing about spark mechanism of action? You know, we've had the trial looking Q3 week that you said it's all an advantage. Interesting phase two looked like it may be better activity than docetaxel. What's your take on all that? Well, I think the abraxine mechanism of action is really quite interesting, not just because they happen to have succeeded with paclitaxel, but because the technology is applicable to virtually every one of our other intravenous drugs. So, you know, I would expect to see some more interesting compounds coming. But, you know, we've got taxanes, and we've got three taxanes now, and they've all got certain advantages and disadvantages. I think if you were to say what is the best taxane of the three, you know, it's not defined yet fully, but sure, there may be some advantages to abraxane. I think it's a base hit, though. It's not a home run here. And, you know, in this particular woman, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to consider. What would you be thinking about? But in my practice, you know, I know that we're palliating this woman. She presumably has regained her hair over the past five months. And in our setting, having women come back weekly is usually a challenge for a number of reasons. I mean, they spend a lot of time in the chemo chair and visiting me. And in terms of quality of life, I think people are often better served at home. So... You know, we're looking at a quality of life issue here, and my preference actually would be to use capecitabine monotherapy. And this woman, you know, she's not been exposed to that agent before. She, strictly speaking, wouldn't meet the bevacizumab guidelines we've set up. She may have a brain met, which is one which I think is silliness. I don't think it's actually a clinical issue, but nonetheless, it's on the guidelines. And again, she wouldn't have been a trial candidate. So I would have treated her with capecitabine and watched and seen what had happened. What about another chemotherapeutic agent considering the critical situation she's facing, trying to get a little extra boost? Well, you know, combination with docetaxel and capecitabine, you know, shows a survival advantage over docetaxel alone, but this woman wouldn't have been eligible for that trial either. And again, the liver function studies would allow her to be treated with that combination. But again, it's a choice back to IV. So, I mean, you have to present these kind of options to her. The exabepilone capecitabine study you know, does show a signal there. And I think that that's a good combination. But once again, in a palliative setting, there are quality of life implications. And that combination we participated in the trial is neurotoxic and it's not the be all and end all. So Chuck, can you talk a little bit about what we know right now about capecitabine and bevacizumab? And there was some data presented at the last ASCO meeting by George Sledge about that. There was a prior trial. How do you put it all together right now? I have treated patients with the capecitabine and BEV just because you know, I think we do have evidence that there is activity to it. The problem with it was, you know, bevacizumab was added to it at its customary point in the chain. 
after anthracycline taxanes, you did pick up the consistent doubling of response that we see in different tumor types. I mean, it's just impressive to me how consistent BEV seems to be in doubling the response rate of whatever chemotherapy you give it to, but it failed its primary endpoint, so we have to call that a negative trial for its primary endpoint. And up front, we didn't see it. The explanation for that that I have heard that makes the most sense to me is that, you know, as tumors evolve, the more time you have with metastatic disease, the tumor burden increases, you're probably getting increasingly complex bypass mechanisms. So if I have a patient, for instance, if she still had peripheral neuropathy from her dose-dense therapy, I'd probably give her capecitabine. I would give her the Avastin with the capecitabine. What did you think about the suggestion or the analysis showing you know, greater efficacy or pretty good efficacy in the ER positive as opposed to ER negative with that capecitabine BEV data from George Sledge? Oh, that's where I'd start worrying, you know, subset. I'm not sure that that would, you know, sort of note it. That's interesting. I mean, you know, we did a phase two neoadjuvant study of GET in locally advanced breast cancer in the NSABP, and we saw a PCR rate of 27% in the ER positives. Well, do I really think that ah, gemcitabine is a ER positive drug? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I guess I didn't really react to it as something that I would alter what I would do. So let's follow up with what happened. Well, the first thing I would say is that email has its good points and its bad. <laughs> but as far as oncology practice, I have found it extraordinarily helpful. So this is obviously a very difficult situation. So I emailed some colleagues, and I'm very grateful for their help. Usually I want to treat people with metastatic disease with a single agent, but in this case it's very aggressive disease, and she's got a lot of symptoms, and I felt she needed more than one agent. I was thinking about ixabepalone and capecitabine, but then I emailed a friend who was involved with that study, and she warned me that if you have abnormal liver function tests, there was a very high incidence of neutropenia and death, and so I scratched that possibility. Then I thought I should give her something with Avastin or Bevacizumab. I ask around, can you give it with someone who's got a brain med? And the consensus was, yes, you give it for GBMs these days, so, you know, it ought to be safe. I thought of then capecitabine plus Bevacizumab, and that's what I was planning to do. But then a friend who I respect pointed out it's a triple negative tumor. There is preclinical data that the platinum compounds may be better with triple negatives, so I'm giving her carboplatin plus bevacizumab. And she just got her first dose last week. And someone else suggested maybe I should throw in gemcitabine, but I thought that was a little bit too much. So, Chuck? Yeah, and actually, I have a similar patient. I'm actually giving her carboabraxane. I would throw in that hedge for the triple negative. And again, to me, when you're treating metastatic disease that is this aggressive, this explosive, again... <laughs> My mentor used to, you know, carry on. He said the best way to achieve quality of life is to get control of fast-growing cancers. And so this would be somebody where I would worry that monotherapy, I better be right because this may be my only shot at getting something in. So I would tend to agree with you. I would want to broaden what I was bringing in, bringing in things that the tumor had not yet seen. So I think the carbo added is an excellent idea. What about the issue of survival? Again, we were talking about before with the ATAC trial, but also in the metastatic setting. Is that a rational goal in metastatic breast cancer to set up trials, you know, looking for survival benefit? Well, I think that it is obviously the goal of all of our 
treatment strategies to improve overall survival, but there are only a handful of positive metastatic trials in the literature. I think we're up to about 10 with overall survival advantages. And, you know, some of the effects are, you know, arguable. But at the end of the day, I think that time to progression is a meaningful endpoint. I think anybody who treats breast cancer knows that it's better for women to be free of progression at any given time point. And we have data from Canada with, again, its captive population, that as these new drugs have been introduced over time, even though individually these drugs may not have shown a survival advantage in their trials, in aggregate, these women are living longer than ever before, and it appears to be largely due to the institution of more effective systemic therapy. So, you know, I think we are budging overall survival in this disease, albeit it's modest. For any one trial to achieve an overall survival benefit, it requires a huge trial, and it's asking a lot because we've got many effective salvage therapies. Alan? My understanding is that on that ECOG trial, the toxicity was primarily, you know, cardiovascular, you know, stroke, and it was mainly seen in older individuals. So certainly a patient such as the one I presented, 56 years old, with aggressive cancer for which there is no other effective treatment, you really do want to have this drug available for that type of patient. It was an interesting issue, Chuck, in terms of the question of using a different strategy. Just like your patient, somebody walks through anthracycline taxane, maybe sort of a different strategy. And in the NSABP, you have a trial that's going to look at anti-angiogenic therapy in the patients who get neoadjuvant treatment. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, the patient population that we have thought conceptually for some time would be appropriate to evaluating targeted therapies more or less by themselves, would be the patients who go through standard neoadjuvant regimens who have residual disease, because we know that those women still have a substantial subsequent event rate. Actually, the group as a whole, their event rate is kind of like the event rate for node-positive patients without any adjuvant therapy. And it was relatively easy and relatively small trials to show activity. That first step is always the easy one. And so... We have been, in a sense, looking for a compound, and we thought that there was enough on sunitinib to suggest that it would be a reasonable agent to test in the population. So we've got a trial. We actually just sent the protocol concepts been approved, and we sent the protocol into CTEP this week. So we're looking at placebo versus sunitinib in that patient population. So we hope to have it activated maybe third quarter this year.